0: I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR, Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. (music) Today on The Spin, our main event conversation, US police killings of black people in 2016 reflect lynchings of racial terrorism in the 1900s. Hot topic one, white South African judge to be booted from the bench due to rape trail comments. And Hot Topic 2, honoring black women's movement building labor. All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Monica Dennis and Jane Lumumba. Monica Dennis joins us from New York. She leads a consulting practice that provides training, coaching, strategic planning and leadership development to organizations and communities committed to racial justice and equity. Monica is an organizer with Black Lives Matter New York City, an international organizing network focused on combating anti-blackness in all of its forms. Monica is co-founder of the Spirit of a Woman Leadership Development Institute, an organization committed to developing and supporting the leadership of black girls and their families. She is currently a thought leader and faculty member with the Novo Foundation's Move to End Violence initiative and core alliance speaking race to power and generative fellowships. Jane Lumumba is a Kenyan urban and development practitioner living and working in Accra, Ghana. Jane is currently the West African Regional Officer at the Commonwealth Local Government Forum, working in local governance and local economic development in Commonwealth West Africa. Jane has worked in areas of urban governance and decentralization at the United Nations Human Settlements Programme, United Nations Habitat. She's also the co-founder and director of Luma Africa, based in Nairobi, Kenya, a regional firm that deals with capacity building to stimulate long-term profit and change. Jane also serves as a board member of the PLO Lumumba Foundation. Welcome, welcome ladies. Hello. Thanks for having us.
1: Hello, Esther. Thanks for having
0: us. Let's start with our main event discussion. Police killings of black people in the United States today compares to racial terrorism of lynchings in the 19th century. Yes.
2: That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast.
3: That's the sound of the police. That's the yes.
0: sound of the beast. <laughs> The comparison has been made in a new hard-hitting report by a United Nations working group of experts on people of African descent. The report said, and I quote, Contemporary police killings and the trauma that they create are reminiscent of the past racial terror of lynching. The report noted that, quote, Most lynching victims died by hanging and a 2015 report by Equal Justice Initiative Found nearly 4,000 black people were killed in racial terror lynchings in a dozen southern states between 1877 and 1950. Unquote. 1892 was the most violent year in terms of anti black violence and lynchings on record. In 2016, killings by the police of black people have surpassed that year. Imagine. The United Nations Working Group was charged with studying the problems of racial discrimination faced by people of African descent living in the African diaspora and to make proposals for its elimination. The UN also issued a declaration for the International Decade of People of African Descent, that's 2015 to 2024, to address the problems of recognition, justice and development. Now, the five-member group that created the report is chaired by Filipino law professor Ricardo A. Sunga III, and it's been tasked with presenting annual reports to the UN Human Rights Council and the General Assembly. They have to also prepare thematic publications on the protection of rights of people of African descent, do some country visits to review human rights progress for people of African descent, and process cases of alleged human rights violations. The report said, and I quote, Impunity for state violence has resulted in the current human rights crisis and must be addressed as a matter of urgency, Now, the report comes as people take to the streets in Charlotte, North Carolina, to protest the most recent killings of black people by police in Tulsa and Charlotte. We mourn Keith Lamont Scott, Terrence Crutcher, as well as Tyree King and Corinne Gaines. And in additional news, just today in San Diego, more news that a young black man was shot and killed by the police. The streets of Charlotte have come alive with a call for justice, a demand to end police brutality, and the need for urgent action. Listen.
2: This is so important to me because we are losing lives, and these lives aren't necessarily lost. It is, it's just imperative that our communities and our local government, law enforcement. Work together, that we collaborate together and come up with this plan together to stop the losing of lives on both sides.
4: I'm down here to support the Black Lives Matter movement and really to support anybody's voice that is going to call for transparency in the police department and in the court system.
0: Officer Betty Shelby, who shot Terence Crutcher, a man who video showed was walking away very slowly with his hands up after his SUV broke down, has been charged with first degree manslaughter. Activist and artist Bree Newsom described the Charlotte protest as a tipping point. In the fight against police brutality towards Black people,
4: what took place in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I am in contact with folks who are who are on the ground there, who were there, um, is is what we have witnessed uh, several times in the past two years. Uh, what we witnessed in America since the '60s, at least, and this is an incident of police brutality that, uh, in many ways, is the camel breaking. I'm sorry, the straw breaking the camel's back kind of moment. Um, like many cities around the nation, in Charlotte, we have a real issue of wealth inequality. We've Uh, several incidents of police brutality. Um, One of the most notable cases was the case of Jonathan Farrell. This was um, a young man who was gunned down by uh, police. He was also unarmed, had crashed his car and was looking for help, knocked on the door. The police showed up and killed him. Um, There was an acquittal in that case. So, like so many other cases, um, this this moment that happened last night, this was not an isolated incident. This is a, a tipping point, a kind of boiling over moment. Um, For the city and for the nation in a lot of ways, Uh, folks are not just reacting to what happened in Charlotte, but also to what happened in Tulsa and what happened in Baton Rouge.
0: Bring Newsom there talking on Democracy Now. President Barack Obama took to the podium to argue
5: for greater change more quickly in addressing these issues. All of us as Americans should be troubled by these shootings because these are not isolated incidents. They're symptomatic of a broader set of racial disparities that exist in our criminal justice system. And I just want to give people a few statistics uh, to try to put in context why emotions are so raw around these issues. According to various studies, not just one, but a wide range of studies that have been carried out over a number of years. African Americans are 30 percent more likely than whites to be pulled over. After being pulled over, African Americans and Hispanics are three times more likely to be searched. Last year, African Americans were shot by police at more than twice the rate of whites. African Americans are arrested at twice the rate of whites. African American defendants are 75 percent more likely to be charged with offenses carrying mandatory minimums. They receive sentences that are almost 10 percent longer than comparable whites arrested for the same crime. So that if you add it all up, the African American and Hispanic population, who make up only 30 percent of the general population, make up more than half of the incarcerated population. Now, these are facts. And when incidents like this occur, there's a big chunk of our fellow citizenry that feels as if, because of the color of their skin, they are not being treated the same. And that hurts. And that should trouble all of us. This is not just a black issue. It's not just a Hispanic issue. This is an American issue that we should all care about. All fair-minded people should be concerned. Last year, we put together a task force that was comprised of civil rights activists and community leaders, but also law enforcement officials, police captains, sheriffs, and they sat around a table And they looked at the data, and they looked at best practices. And they came up with specific recommendations and steps that could ensure that the trust between communities and police departments were rebuilt, and incidents like this would be less likely to occur. Change has been too slow. And we have to have a greater sense of urgency about this. The numbers are horrifying.
0: But they are not just statistics. They are stories of family, lost loved ones, disappeared memories, unmade plans, joy and love and laughter and premature grieving. So let's talk anti-black violence reaching record levels in 2016, surpassing lynchings of racial terror from 1892. Monica Dennis, your thoughts.
6: I just have to take a moment to just breathe in um, listening to you and doing this organizing that I do here in the U.S. on the ground with Black Lives Matter, I often have to take a minute to just pause and breathe, and because the trauma and the impact of what is actually happening to black people is just so intimately close upon me and so many of us, I just wanted to take a pause for myself. Um, but I, I just think it's incredible, just really incredible that we have surpassed the highest levels of anti-Black violence in this country um, from 1892. So you're talking about more than 100 years ago that the United States in particular is in this period of of regression. Um, And then I'm also really interested in and how, uh, in terms of a human rights frame, we might look at the continuum of police violence and the continuum of state-sanctioned violence, because we're at this current moment, we are able to see, we are able to focus on the actual types of violence that lead to death. But there's a whole continuum of policing around harassment, surveillance, the ticketing system that actually leads to these what we see as random traffic stops, often, and then lead to um, lead to the death that we're seeing. So I I am astounded by the report and also I'm really interested in us looking at policing in black communities across a continuum.
0: Jane Lumumba, your thoughts?
6: As an African, one would argue that these
1: realities are very far away from from me and from us. But even just today, I read and watched a report of uh, a young African migrant in El Cajon, California, who was mentally ill but was shot by the cops. And and I stopped and I thought, wow. So even me as an African, you know, walking around in the states, you know, just because of my blackness, you know, I'm I'm in danger. And the UN report that has just been released is absolutely appalling, and um, it's shocking to me that in 2016. Um, this issue of uh, black brutality and police injustice is still such a sensitive issue in the state and no one is willing to address the core issues, the real issues behind why this is taking place. And even just earlier today, there's another video that has been released in Houston uh, where a black officer was attacking a homeless man in a train station. And, you know, the the head of the police department in Houston came out with a report and said that that was excessive force. Meanwhile, even with a white cop, would have been different. So for me, as an African sitting here in a car, you know, reading these stories and watching these stories, I sympathize with my brothers out there in the States. And, you know, the elections in the States has just completely uh, overshadowed some of these things that are happening. And I just wonder how many of these cases are not being highlighted. The, the few ones that have been picked up by uh, Samaritans or bystanders are the ones that we see. So for me, um, it's, it's really painful. It's really shocking. The dehumanization of black people it makes me think, when will this stop? When will black people be seen as human beings?
0: What's really powerful for me is thinking about a report that reveals in 2016, the last year of the history-making presidency of the first African-American president is a report that compares the racial terror that black people face and the killings that black people face on the ground with that under enslavement in 1892. And it strikes me very specifically because I always think about the notion of so-called progress walking hand in hand with pain and punishment and criminality and violence. And I specifically think about the fact that black people the world over have an intimate relationship with violence that walks hand in hand with this notion of progress. So the celebration that existed that um, a black man would be elected to the office that really represents the most potent presentation of white male power, that that reality represents a moment of progress. And then in the year that he ends his presidency, a report is revealed that highlights a regression to the kind of violence that is described as racial terror and lynchings from 1892. And I so appreciate you saying you need to take a pause, Monica, because I was floored when I read that. I literally read it. I reread it. I think I checked maybe three or four different sources because I just could not believe. I simply could not understand or accept that in 2016, we are talking and comparing levels of racial terror and lynchings from 1892. So I figured, okay, in the world of 24 hour media, someone has made a serious mistake. And so I checked it and then I checked it again and I checked it again. It was four sources in when I said, wow, this is powerful. And then went back and listened to the spin where Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay, a scholar and writer highlighted the same statistics and, you know, Part of the challenge for me is for journalism, for media, this becomes this phenomenal statistic to throw out there. For black people living their lives, it is the absolute manifestation of what it means to be in an undeclared war where you are the target of domestic terrorism that is undeclared, except that it's recognized, of course, by those fighting the fight in all the different ways that they do. But there's the level of denial by huge pockets of white America and the refusal to call it by its name means that you're in this bizarre kind of surreal matrix where the United Nations has recognized the extent of the problem through its reports, where activists on the streets are protesting the issue and the, the killings, the daily Killings now videoed because of social media, which enables us to be much more intimately engaged with that violence. All of these records, and still, you will hear pundits. You will even hear the president talk about communities of color feeling that they are disproportionately treated by the police in comparison to their white counterparts. So that, that it makes me say, how much evidence is required? to recognise that we are in the midst of an undeclared war where humanity is the casualty, people are losing their lives. The idea that you call yourself a democracy and you have an entire population being terrorised, even as we claim things like this is the greatest nation on the earth, even as we claim democracy, we claim progress, we claim first world status, all of that just completely blows my mind. So then I wonder for you, Monica, on the ground, organizing with Black Lives Matter, how this reality breaks down in doing the organizing and doing the work. Like, how does that manifest for you?
6: On so many occasions, um, we're actually trying to address literally, Esther, the actual violence that we're experiencing. But also there's organizing that happens that, actually has to be around how do you sustain those of us who are on the ground. And so what oftentimes people see, and I'll explain it in two parts, so what oftentimes folks will see are, you know, the direct actions, right? So the activities around shutting down highways, shutting down, interrupting all manner of life, all manner of life that keeps people comfortable while we are being dehumanized and slaughtered in the streets all across the United States, right? And so that's one aspect, but there's also a tremendous amount of strategic organizing of through what are our demands what is it that we want beyond an indictment? Because part of the way white supremacy works, it takes up so much space around these police killings that we're, we find ourselves, many of us find ourselves simply wanting what we would call accountability or our day in court. When it did, and by wanting that, that does not even afford us the opportunity to think even broader about what would transformative or restorative justice look like? Because we have been, our need has been so unmet around the initial steps of a holistic, we're not even a holistic, a very viable legal process. So oftentimes we're taking to the streets just to say, show us the video. Show us, you know, make sure we can get an indictment. Make sure this officer doesn't get just death duty because no one has really ever been um, convicted and, and lost all manner of life or their pensions as a result of killing people. And so there's another level of organizing that actually has to happen that allows us to tap into our radical imagination about what is beyond indictment? What is safety beyond policing? So we literally have campaigns where we're talking about what would it look like to be in our communities to have safety beyond policing. And then the other element is that the, the process of healing justice, how is it that we are able to maintain our wholeness, our connection to one another? How do you get up every morning and not have, um, and work through your own apathy, work through your own depression, your own anxiety about the onslaughts of you being seen, if you're not even being seen of us being a target. And so we work equally hard, Esther, to create spaces of black joy where we get to celebrate, commune, and be with one another so that we can get up and go back out. And then just one other thing, it strikes me, this question of proof, right, that this is an essential part of the construction of the United States, that if in its construction we are not seen as human, then there's no point. At every point of our life, I should say, we are always going to be asked to validate who we are, whether it is you are the President of the United States and you need to produce your birth certificate or you need to produce all manner of evidence to show that this person, regardless of whatever activities they may have been involved in, they are still worthy of not being killed.
0: Jane, I wonder for you as an African woman, and I lived in New York for eight years, reported in Washington, D.C. and um, Philadelphia, and there is sometimes the false notion that... There is this separation between African and African-Americans. And one of the harshest realities of the United States is recognizing that the notion of blackness in its extraordinary power puts you absolutely and makes you a living, moving, breathing target as far as police violence is concerned. So I wonder, in terms of your work around good governance and what that means, what do you think you would want to see in terms of changing the way we govern and think about these issues on the ground?
1: I mean, I also lived in Canada for a couple of years myself. And I mean, the racial atmosphere in Canada is very different from that of the states. But just to put myself in that shoe of being an African uh, in a context where, you know, blackness is so evil and so negative you know it's it's a hard one you want to as an individual want to differentiate yourself and say that listen i may not be well aware of your history as african americans i may not be well aware of the pain that you've gone through but that means nothing in that context the minute you're black you're black and you will ex- and white people or police will not see you as different they will see the color of your skin and they will judge you by the color of your skin and not your ethnicity not your tribe not your nationality. And that's just the unfortunate doom that, you know, black people, not only in America, but, you know, in other parts of the world have to go through. And for me, I, I, I now think of, you know, our young African youth who are, who I, America, and other places in the world who want to go and, you know, seek for better opportunities and make lives, in, you know, in areas and spaces where they think it's better than Africa. You know, when they go to these contexts, they now have to face this duality of being African and being black in America and how do they negotiate those things and how are they received and how do they, you know, um, manipulate this kind of duality in that context. And for me, coming from a governance perspective, it's a very complex question that you've asked because when it comes to race and and these issues, you know, governance just gets swept under the carpet. It now becomes more sociological in the sense that how do we break down um, these uh, these uh, racial barriers these the way we think of ourselves in this context and you know what kind of sociological analysis um, can you know for lack of a better word cure um, these um, these feelings that you know Africans uh, within those contexts can feel like uh, so for me I think that you know governance does not really um, um, help us with the solution I think for me it's more of at the micro level, how do we begin to change the way we think about these things at the micro level so that when we're interacting in society, when we're interacting within our communities, then, you know, those things, those things within the micro level can then go and affect um, how, you know, blackness um, is viewed, uh, whether you're African, whether you're African-American within this context.
6: You know, Jane, When you, I'm so uh, appreciative of what you're sharing. One of the most disruptive undercurrents or themes or strands that is um, part of the narrative around police killings, whether it's true or not, is that it reinforces a narrative that there's something about uh, U.S.-born black people that is actually reinforcing and leading to all manner of violence. When we look at one of the most um, important cases to happen in the last 20 years is the, sh- the police shooting in New York City of Amadou Diallo, right? And so there's mm-hmm. a way in which there's um, a, th- a strand of disruption that's looking to separate uh, black people mm-hmm. throughout the diaspora, in terms of being mm-hmm. effective organizing, and so we're particularly um, interested and, and committed to organizing with um, with people from out the, throughout the African diaspora who are here in the United States, because um, uh, blackness is blackness in the American in mm-hmm. the American purview, right? And so there's yes. a very again disruptive strain, and so organizations like Black Alliance for Just Immigration are really effective on the ground and in communities about talking with black immigrants who are in the U.S. about exactly what can happen. And and this is happening to so many uh, black people across the diaspora who are here in the United States. It is not those of us who are just born in the U.S.
0: I think that's a really important point because one of the things the uh, phenomenal writer Toni Morrison says is that white supremacy serves as a distraction. And the point you make, Monica, is about the, the idea that we all insist on being who we are. And what the cancer of white supremacy does is render the parts of you that you claim in terms of your identity, in terms of tribe. And I always say that tribe is to Africa what race is to America. It is complicated. We are complicated until we are in the midst and facing that kind of state-sanctioned violence and the violence of white supremacy where all of those things melt away and you are identified, irrespective of shade, as black, and that that blackness is a negative connotation in white supremacy's eyes. And I think part of our challenge is to not allow that definition to become ours. And the um, notion that um, if... We don't take care and, and recognize that white supremacy's cancer can be a thing that intimately divides us. The danger that you articulate that this idea that there's what is it about U.S. born black people when it doesn't happen in other places is a really dangerous narrative. It's not just that it's a lie. It's that it's a seductive lie. It allows certainly some people from the continent to engage in the illusion that if it were them, in that car, on that street, on that block. there They would have reacted differently, they would have done something differently and they would not be alive. And that kind of seductive lie prevents the additional engagement in organizing that would help benefit all of our lives. Because ultimately... Enslavement's legacy of white supremacy is colonialism's legacy of white supremacy here in Ghana. The manifestation may be different. It doesn't manifest necessarily in the same kind of police brutality, but there are other ways that it manifests. And so taking care to not engage in those divisive Techniques are important. And those techniques, you know, they belong in history as well. As much as we're comparing these horrific statistics of 2016 versus 1892, part of that, the idea that the African versus the African-American, shade versus shade, all of those tropes and traits were designed to maintain division. And part of our work is to not allow that cancer to do its work of dividing us when we're at a point where the violence catches you all in different ways and not becoming a contributor to the violence is part of our work through our language, through our statements, and through our perceptions. All of that is really important work.
6: I was going to add, Esther, just one. Um, and also, it interrupts our possibilities of actually seeking out one another, wherever we may be in the diaspora, for solutions to this, right? Because we understand that mm. the levels of engagement around violence, around uh, disenfranchisement, around dehumanization, are, have a unique thread. And that we can actually tap into one tap into each other for that. And so, those of us in the Black Lives, the current iteration of the Black Liberation Movement, known as Black Lives Matter, we see this as part of a Pan African struggle, right? And uh-huh. so, um, the more that we can actually be in rooms together, be use these social media platforms to actually connect our issues, I see places across the, across the ocean as sources of solution, because you've also engaged in this, and how might we come together and organize around that. But as long as we see each other as that, actually, that would never happen to me, then there isn't the possibility of all of us being liberated from these forms of violence.
1: Yeah, and just to add, Monica, you know, today's shooting in El Cajon, uh, the, his name was Alfred Olango, and I think he's Kenyan, and just looking me at the Kenyan social media. I already see some responses, so... Speaking to the point that, you know, well, Africans or people in the diaspora should be able to also support the Black Lives Matter movement, I already see, I'm already seeing some of the support that's coming from the continent, because this, this just happened today, and already the social media is, you know, bursting with people saying, so, you know, we are also dying. It's not just African-Americans. It's just being black is the
0: problem. And I, and I think I would just close by saying that all of the supremacies are problematic, you know, there can be an American supremacy in how we look at and think about this violence and that is no less problematic than the notion of an African supremacy. It is all problematic when it prevents us from doing the pan-Africanist work that is a liberation project for all of us as people of colour. And I think that's very important because I think sometimes what happens is there is this idea that, that some black lives matter more than other black lives. And that is, is also a notion that is damaging and dangerous for a liberation movement. And I like that notion of this is the Black Lives Matter, is this current day continuation of a black liberation project that includes, you know, the fight for independence for Ghana in 1957 and colonialism's legacy in this nation as we speak right now. And so the supremacy, be it white, be it American, be it African, all prevents us from doing the work that a liberation project requires. And part of that, for me, very importantly, is around our emotionality and fighting to stay whole, to grieve in ways that reflect the cyclical, unrelenting violence that we face and creating process and practice to make that real, not just ideology or philosophy, but to make it a practice and a process that we can engage and create on a regular, everyday basis. Seriously, but some of these police officers, they are acting, as Bob Marley would say, like crazy ballads.
6: Uh, yeah. (laughs) yeah, absolutely.
0: was our main event discussion you're listening to the spin a one-hour weekly all women of color media panel i'm your host esther Armar. our contributors this week are monica dennis and jane lumumba this spin is brought to you by the african-american public radio consortium I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa in Ghana on Star FM 103.5 and in Lagos, Nigeria on WFM 91.7. And we are online via podcast. Hot topic time. A judge faces the boot from the bench because of his remarks about rape. A white South African judge working in Canada has made headlines and faces removal from the bench after his comments during a 2014 rape case. The 19-year-old young woman alleged she was raped over a bathroom sink during a house party. And during the trial, the judge said, quote, sex and pain sometimes go together. That's not necessarily a bad thing, unquote. Here's CNN reporting the story.
3: The judge in a rape case asked the woman who was a rape victim, quote, I don't wanna get this one wrong. Why couldn't you just keep your knees together? End quote. The judge's name is Robin Camp, he is right now in the middle of a week-long judicial council hearing that is going to determine whether that man stays in that robe, or stays on that bench or gets the boot it all stems from this twenty fourteen case the rape victim was a nineteen-year-old woman she had been raped over a bathroom sink she said during a house party the court records show that judge camp had plenty of advice for the accuser and then for the man who was charged with the crime as well so let's start with the advice that he had for the woman in his courtroom Um, why didn't she quote just skew her pelvis or push her bottom to the sink to avoid penetration and then his advice for the man in the courtroom after he acquitted him quote i want you to tell your friends your male friends that is that they have to be far more gentle with women. They have to be far more patient and they have to be very careful to protect themselves. They have to be very careful. And then listen to these comments in general just for the rest of us. Young women want to have sex, particularly if they're drunk. Some sex and pain sometimes go together and that's not necessarily a bad thing.
0: So just to reiterate, this federal judge, Robin Kemp, repeatedly described the victim as, quote, the accused, unquote, throughout the trial. And the actual accused was acquitted. Now, after quitting the young man, Kemp said to him, and I quote, I want you to tell your friends, your male friends, that they have to be far more gentle with women. They have to be far more patient and they have to be very careful to protect themselves. They have to be very careful, unquote. Now, that acquittal has been dismissed because of the judge's remarks and a new trial is expected to take place in November. Now, the 2014 case is headlines today because the judge is in the middle of a week-long judicial council hearing by the Canada Judicial Council. And it began its investigation after the judge's conduct hit the headlines. Now, lawyers are saying there is actually enough evidence to boot him off the bench. Mr. Camp is 64 years old. He claims to have little criminal law experience, but said his experience came from the world of corporate law. His daughter also revealed that she too was a victim of rape, but decided not to press charges. She wrote a letter to the judicial panel about her father's sensitivity, she claims, after she told him about the sexual ordeal that she went through. Now, the spin recently discussed the case of another white South African judge, Mabel Jensen, who wrote that, quote, rape is part of black South African men's culture, unquote. Now, this judge, Robin Camp, his comments fit within the misogyny of elderly white men in positions of power whose job of impartial judgment is clouded by the reality of their personal belief system, and it impacts those who endure the ordeal of a trial in their fight for justice from rape allegations. According to news reports, the judge has received counseling, training, and has apologized and is willing to make amends. Lawyers, however, continue to call for his dismissal from the bench. In Canada, of every 100 incidents of sexual assault, only six are reported to the police. That's according to the research. So let's talk. A judge potentially being booted from the bench. One who claims openly he has no actual experience in criminal law, but is adjudicating cases about that very issue. Jane Lumumba, your thoughts.
1: You know, when I read this story, I was just shocked. Because for me, how do you teach an old dog new tricks? You know, they claim he's going through counseling, he's he's now being um, coached by a psychologist, a feminist professor, and for me, you know, with his background coming from South Africa uh, during apartheid era, uh, you know, his age and his daughter apparently claims he's old-fashioned, I mean, I, I, I don't see how, you know, all these interventions will help the man and will help the judiciary. I don't know. I I think he should be booted out. But, you know, one thing also the articles don't mention, or the stories don't mention, is that the lady um, is um, from the First Nations. She's Aboriginal and she's Native. And, you know, for those of us who know Canada's history with the Natives and the Aborigines, you know, that relationship is very tense. So um, you find that a lot of... um, First Nations um, experience something similar to the states whereby, you know, they they experience a lot of injustice. You know, they're shut out from um, Canadian social life. So access to justice for them is also very difficult. So um, I'm I'm waiting to see what will happen after the the five-member panel decide what to do. But for me, I think um, all hope is lost.
0: (laughs) All hope is lost. Monica Dennis.
6: Yeah, when I think about the first thing I thought is, what about the survivor, right? What about this person? So here this person of the judiciary has received training and counseling and um, is seen as somebody who can be reformed and yet I, just as you're speaking, Jane, I think about her, her position, her social position in society and the historical implications of what happens to Native people um, and, and Native people around this. It's, just mind, it's just startling to the mind that, uh, and again, this thing going back to like how much energy and depletion there is and just proving the basics, right, that it does not create an opportunity for other possibilities, right? And so I also am struck that here, and and I don't know why I'm struck, because I do this work, we all do this work, we know what the realities are, but I am struck by how the conflation of rape with sex, right, that there has been so little movement. On our understanding of what nonconsensual sex is, rape, sexual assault, all of these forms of sexual violence, and still thinking at the base that it is the same thing as sex, right? So you just need to be a little bit easier with her. All of these kinds of all of this kind of foolishness that is still uh, part of the day again interrupts our ability to be effective on much larger levels and to center the experience of survivors. And he absolutely must go. And um, and he's also not existing in a vacuum, right? So uh, and the reason that he can be part of this process and then say things and just reading the, the news reports about I was not as familiar with Canadian law. There's all of this just foolishness and mindlessness, but he's, he can exist because there's a container, a system in which that, that can be allowed. So he may be the person of the moment that gets surfaced and is most visible, but I suspect that there are many others like him.
0: It is always stunning to me that mediocrity and incompetence in the bodies of white men are still rewarded with privilege, position and power. How on earth is it possible that a judge who has no experience in the thing he's being asked to adjudicate still gets the position of that kind of authority and is given the space and the room to make those kinds of remarks? Be clear, if these are the remarks that made the headlines, I'm thinking about the numbers of cases that we know nothing about That actually didn't make the headlines that we know nothing about where there's been acquittal after acquittal after acquittal and all kinds of things may have been said to women who have the courage to bring a rape to trial. Because the evidence and the research shows that it is a re-traumatizing reality for uh, alleged victims of rape to actually come to trial because of the nature, the adversarial nature of the criminal justice system. I am stunned again. I'm stunned that this man has received counselling and training and, and and this apology. And I'm thinking you've received counselling and training for your stupidity, for your ignorance, for your lack of experience and for your incompetence. What has the survivor received? What counselling has been made available to her for what she has been through as a result of your inability to recognise the difference between sex and rape? And if That's the basic test. If you are unable to recognize the difference between the two, then that by definition should prevent you from ever having the kind of job that requires you to judge that very thing. And I'm always stunned. I shouldn't be because this is the work we do every day. And as you say, Monica, we see this all the time. But I'm consistently stunned that mediocrity and incompetence put in the hands of whiteness and particularly white men, but white women as well, becomes privilege and position and payment and profit. And so there's going to be another trial in November and it bothers me that people see that as some kind of justice because I'm thinking about what it took for this young lady to report it in the first place. The idea of being native, being aboriginal and the relationship between indigenous peoples and the first world in terms of Canada and the way that it operates and how challenging it was for her to bring the case in the first place and then to be subjected to the entire thing. You think about a cross-trial and cross-examination when it comes to allegations of rape. And I'm stunned and I will, I will keep talking, but the truth is I'm without language. <laughs> I'm just without language. So th- one of the arguments that the Canadian lawyers made was that would it be smarter to force him to do the work of confronting his misogyny beyond the apology, but then going back to adjudicate cases with this additional training? Or do you boot him from the bench, retire him early? Frankly, I think he should be charged with criminal conduct, but that's just me. But which which of those do you go for, ladies? Shane, let me start with you.
1: I, I think he should just be let to retire early. I mean, the guy is 64. He clearly has a history of misogyny. He's old-fashioned. You know, it's it's just too late in the game to come in and intervene with all these counseling and, you know, trying to, you know, reorient his mind to now think differently. I don't think all these uh, interventions will really help. I think the best thing for them to do is just tell the man, you go home, it's okay, it's fine. And, but like you say, you know, the privilege that has been given to now even just reassess himself, you know, all these excuses and Um, that the Canadians have allowed, the Canadian Digital Council have allowed him to experience, I think would have been very different if one, he was either a black judge, or if he was an Asian judge, or he was even just a native judge. So, for me, I think he has stopped
6: his time. He has done what he needs to do, and he needs to go home. Monica Dennis? Yeah, I think uh, he should be... He needs to be in continued conversation about this, right? But that cannot happen in the spaces where he is adjudicating cases. And so, retirement, for me, it would be, you know, a retirement without pay, if that's the option. I think criminal charges should absolutely be processed. And I do think he should have to be in continual conversations about misogyny and patriarchy and how that intersects with the law. And I'd be really curious to see what a survivor-led process would be, what survivors think a process around reviewing cases should look like. And I know that's a big stretch. That's something that would have to be planned for, but just really curious about how many survivors are actually in the role of judge. What is that like? And what are survivors saying they want as an informed process? But uh, he can no longer profit and no longer advise at this level. And I do think he, he just doesn't get to go home. There is a continued conversation and, and teaching that, has, that gets to happen.
0: And I just close by saying that I think about that black mother who misrepresented where she lived in order to get her son in a better school. And she ended up being incarcerated for almost five years This judge essentially misrepresented his experience in order to acquire a position of power. So yes, absolutely criminal charges. And I would say time beyond just being booted from the bench because his actions criminalized a young woman who found the courage to come to trial. And these are just the ones we know about. And I always believe that where there are known actions, the unknown, those that went silently are uncounted and potentially uncountable. But boot him out and definitely press charges I mean we have incompetent police officers who are unable to de-escalate and incompetent judges who don't leave their misogyny at home claim no experience and then preside over someone's fate this judge Judge Robin Camp seriously Judge Camp wait a minute seriously wait a minute
2: oh, wait a minute oh, wait a minute hey hey girl a wait, wait a minute, a minute. Oh, wait a minute, oh, wait a minute.
7: Oh.
0: Time for our second hot topic. September 25th was the anniversary of the death of Wangari Maathai, the first African to win the Nobel Peace Prize. She won it in 2004, and Wangari Maathai was Kenyan from the land of President Obama's father and his father's people. She founded a gender-based environmental movement called the Green Belt Movement in 1977, and she founded the Mazingira Green Party of Kenya in 2003. In her Nobel speech... Wangari Matai spoke about the labour of women in redressing injustice and colonialism's legacy of the lie of white superiority.
2: As the first African woman to receive this prize, I accepted on behalf of the people of Kenya and Africa, and indeed the whole world. Tree planting became a natural choice to address some of the initial basic needs identified by women. So together we planted over 30 million trees that provide fuel, food, shelter and income to support the children's and education and household needs. The activity also creates employment and improves soils and watersheds. Through their involvement, women gain some degree of power over their lives, especially their socio-economic position and relevance in the family. This work Continues. Initially, the work was difficult because historically our people have been persuaded to believe that because they are poor, they lack not only capital but also knowledge and skills to address their challenges. Instead, they are conditioned to believe that their solutions to their problems must come from outside.
0: Wangari Matai's words and work remind us of women's labor in movement building, in justice organizations, in fighting for human rights through resistance and organizing, sacrifice and struggle. Matai made national progress, negotiated personal pain and endured punishment from her government for her movement work. From Kenya in 1977 to today's Global Black Lives Matter movement, founded by Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi and Patrice Khan-Cullors from the women of the anti-apartheid movements to Lavish Reynolds and Terence Crutcher's wife, women who stood and became witness to police violence in order that we would better know the extent to which violence is perpetrated on black people by the state. Lavish Reynolds would, of course, Facebook time the aftermath of the police shooting of her boyfriend, Philando Castile, as her daughter, her baby girl, sat in the back of her car. And Keith Lamont Scott's wife would film police begging them for her husband's life, even as she watched them take it. We honor the various labors of black and brown women in movement building. And we discuss the particular struggle and sacrifice in dealing with this kind of weird threesome of progress, pain and punishment when it comes to black women building movements that move nations forward, even as their progress their movement building in terms of their personal selves, their family selves, their physical selves, their spiritual selves, their emotional selves gets so neglected. Monica Dennis, let me start with you.
6: I often think about this work as a person that's on the ground, that if it were not for the women, what stories would be being told? And so um, I think it's imperative and essential for my own humanity, for the accuracy of our legacy for the ability to come up with solutions to our vision for liberation, things would not exist without the input of particularly black women in these movement spaces. So because, obviously, you know, we are organized as patriarchal societies wherever we, we might be for the most part, without us being on the ground, in the strategy rooms, in, and around our kitchen tables, like actually leading the conversation, our story will, will not get told. Our approaches will not be part, of the, be part of the conversation and will not direct towards liberation. And then I think about the responsibility because of the gendered nature of, all, of many of our, our societies and our communities in which uh, women are often responsible for holding community together. The impact um, of our voice is even more exponential for me. And so what I mean by that is When Philando Castile's partner is recording that or you have young girls who are witnessing all manners of violence that are happening and these family members are killed, it is the women and the young girls and communities who actually have to do the restoration process, who still have to go to work, who still have to organized, who still have to hold community together, who still have to figure out how to seek justice, and so I feel like that part is often missing, and so that voice comes through us because we're in the spaces. And then I think about historically, uh, at least in the U.S., black women have visibly not been at the forefront because of the way patriarchy works, but we generally make up 80% of all movement-based work, but yet and still, so our, our voices are not there. And so our commitment in this current iteration of the black liberation movement known as Black Lives Matter is to actually lead with that and to lead with it in a way that feels organic and strategic and effective to us to those of us who
0: are black girls and women, Jane Lumumba, let me close with you.
1: When now you speak of there, I feel very proud because um, she's Kenyan and I'm Kenyan as well and for me, um it pains me that you know, in terms of restoration or movement building, that women have to you know kind of assert themselves in such times of pain and and trauma, and you know it's never done in moments of joy, you know it's always a struggle. And when you look at it comparatively, you know black women are at the short end of the stick. Where, in order for us to get our voices heard, in order for us to get things done, you know we have to come from um, a place of pain, a place a place of struggle, and uh, and it's sad. But at the same time, we find ourselves in these realities, and uh, it just shows the strength of uh, of our women that we are able to, um, you know, kind of suppress all the. Uh, the emotional, uh, roller coasters that we go through just to fight for our children, you know, our sons, uh, you know, our husbands, our brothers. And, and for me, um, you know, just working in, in Africa and working in a context where we're still having this gender conversation. You know, we're still analyzing the role of women, for example, in politics, and in governance. And you know, it, it 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 pains me a lot of times when I have to, you know, for example, go to a city or you know a certain area in rural Africa, and women are still very um, suppressed or even questioning their abilities um, to engage in any sort of meaningful work. And and the, the examples that have been mentioned today, such as you know Philando Castillo's partner, or you know Terrence Crutcher's wife, or even Wangari Maathai, many other women, uh, are for me very uh, encouraging. As a black woman living in today's society, um, you know, knowing that despite the fact that we come from you know a place of pain, we're able to overcome and still share our stories and potentially have those stories um, change and bring forth some sort of a revolution in terms of progress.
0: That's it. We never really know what we have, sadly, until it's gone. to Jane Lumumba and Monica Dennis. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin Production Team, Sound Editor David McKeever, Distributor Loretta Rucker and the AAPRC. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Arma We're
2: about to jump. <laughs> We're about to jump, y'all. I got moxie, I'm so damn proxy. Industry try to block me like cops and paparazzi. that
6: don't copy. Just copy properly. Everybody no. say policy, universal no. equality, responsibility, policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically. future of freedom, equality. Invest your money properly. People owe me your policy. Intellectual property, stealing, stolen commodity, souls controlling robbery, so cold control so lack of commodity, can copycats bother me. Mono, on follow me. Honest, honest Honestly, all these jokers economy kind of Puppets with no autonomy Yup, it's food. Yeah.
0: I see you looking, but you better take, take it easy you know. tell your goons that they better take it, it easy Here comes the rocket launch on. Take, take, take it easy, take it easy You better take it easy it take take it too, loose. Loose.
7: too much ex-mommy, take, take, take it easy take good with the sex, you be like Take it easy Mommy, take, take it easy Take it
5: easy, take you
0: better take it easy You moving bricks but you better take it easy Here's a tip you two flash I don't tip twice But your best friend He And that dog Sniff in the bag Ain't last seen And I ain't rhyme In a minute But y'all ain't up. And I ain't blood On your shirt man That's up. Picture cleft, Get in the right to give him help I'd rather kill myself Become a ghost And write for myself Cause I'm a top celebrity Top celebrity Top celebrity in the sea I flow for the thugs Gypsies and hippies
7: Yeah I'll get on my stroll With a night, turn blow flow Malcolm X come out Hit the clue cool club show I see you looking But you better than it's of you it. Tell you Goose, easy. Easy. Here comes the rocket launcher, yeah. take it easy, take it easy, you better take it easy.
5: Too much ex-mommy, take it easy, <explosions> it easy. good with the sex,
6: you'll <laughs> be like, take, <laughs> easy. Mommy, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy, take, take it easy. Yeah. easy, you better take hey. it easy. Cause you uh, know originals get plagiarized, majors, minors, my supervisors, climbers get scooped, and I click blind
7: blondes, stupid guys, wicked
0: people, choose homicide, drugs, and society, heathen, the neck focus bogus, the bleeding, the uh, nigger, the no is uh, in than Angelitos, Tony, bro, them chicos,
7: chicas, complete animal addiction, the
0: this program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.